By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. We're going to jump right into part two of our discussion with Scott Fawcett. If you haven't listened to part one, you can go back and check that out. We mostly concentrated on tee shot strategy. In part two, where we pick up, we're still going to talk about tee shot strategy, but as you'll hear, myself, Adam, and Scott probably get a little philosophical and dive into many other topics that I think will be helpful to you in your golf game. So please enjoy. And just a quick thank you to our show sponsor, Shop Indoor Golf. You can check them out at shopindoorgolf.com. They've got all the major brands of golf simulators and launch monitors, whether you're looking for something high-end like a Foresight GC Quad or something like a Skytrack, which is what I personally use. They can outfit everything your home simulator studio needs, like their SigPro Premium Impact Screen. So check them out at shopindoorgolf.com and thanks to their support of The Sweet Spot. And without further ado, we're going to pick up right where we left off with Scott Fawcett in part two. Well, Adam, I'm glad you're here for this because you're a master of impact physics and fundamentals and all that stuff. As an instructor and someone who thinks very differently about the golf swing, like what is your take on that from the performance perspective, not necessarily even the strategy perspective? Like, what do you think about when someone tells you like, oh, you know, you got to place it on this part of the fairway to gain that angle? Like, what are you thinking about? Well, I agree with Scott. I mean, we, Scott and I have chatted about free will, the concept of free will in other contexts. And uh, I know it's quite kind of esoteric to bring it into golf, but we cannot control our movement. And I suppose we go through different layers of this or different levels when we're learning about manage uh, course management you know the beginner thinks well i can hit lasers or that should be the goal and then as we progress through time we start to see well well actually no i can't control it to where i can pick out a specific spot on the fairway maybe it's a little wider than that and then we get to the level where you know scott's bringing in actually the width even for a tour pro is a 70 yard wide area and we cannot control whether we hit the right side or left side or center of that that is not in our 
our control. If it was, we'd be multi-billionaires. What we can control is where we overlay that shot pattern. And so I think what Scott is saying, or what we've all been saying, is that you know choosing your your aim points and your targets effectively. And you know Scott said something nice earlier. Just letting the fairway get in the way of that. I think I'm quoting you there. I, I like that a lot. Just letting the get the fairway get in the way. Yeah, exactly. And you know, by aiming or by trying to pick a specific side of the fairway, you're no more likely to hit that specific side of the fairway, but you are more likely to bring in some other crap that's on the right or left. So you're you're better off just overlaying the 70-yard wide circle in a sensible place and hoping that, you know, Scott calls it what variance, normal variance, I call it biological variability, just hoping that, you know, that motor pattern accidentally comes out, you know, sometimes you'll hit it straight in the middle of your dispersion, sometimes you'll hit it the the left side of your dispersion, sometimes you'll hit it the right side, and it'll be perfect. And that's the best way to play to have happy accidents happen rather than trying to force the correct thing to happen. Because you're just as likely, as I said, you're just as likely to hit the right side of the fairway, the correct side of the fairway when it's an accident. Well, I think it can I chime in for a quick second here, because I, I don't want to lose this thought. Based on like, I think having the launch monitor data and and shot tracking on the course, a lot of these, you know, I've looked at so much data at this point, whether it's from Scott, you, Adam, you know, ShotScope, Mark Brody, my own shot patterns. I think a lot of it just, and we devoted a whole episode on face control. And I always encourage people to go back to that one because people ask me like, well, how'd you become a scratch golfer? And I'm like... I think it was mostly face control. And what I mean by that and getting to this, like picking one side of the fairway is, you know, where that club face is pointing at impact is a huge influence on where that ball is going and where it's going to end up. And there's not a player on this planet who can pick a spot in the fairway and expect to have such control over where that golf ball, I'm sorry, where that club face is pointing you know, you always say the path is more reliable than the face, which I think is is true too when you look at golfers. It's just, to me, I look at it, I'm like, no one can just control the club where the club face is pointing that well to expect to pick out that little area and land it in that 10, 20-yard window. I've never seen it before in person. I'm a pretty good ball striker now. I can sit there on my launch monitor for 50 shots and then I look at all 50 of them. I'm like, well, I had no pressure on me. Totally normalized conditions and look at all of those left to right dispersions I had, especially with driver. So, you know, it's I don't know, it's bizarre to me that it's kind of turned into this like really horrible debate at this point. I've really haven't that is almost like irrelevant to me. Like I've never gotten into these debates I have my opinion on it based on what I've seen. And like, I hope like, uh, you know, this podcast does go out to a lot of people right now. So I hope we, me, me and Adam don't like controversy. So we're probably uh, getting a little scared at this point. No, no. But to me, it's, you know, in the context of shooting your lowest scores, and like, I just never understood that. Like when I show up to a golf course and people are like, oh, you got to land it on this part of the green. So you have the uphill putt or you got to land it on this part of the fairway. So you have that angle. I'm like... My reaction is just like, I'm just not good enough to do that. I never was when I was, you know, back when I was a 10 handicap or being a plus one now, like I'm just not good enough to do that. And it never made sense to me. And the more and more I've learned about impact fundamentals and shot patterns, I'm like, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. But I get why people 
you know, there's a different part of golf that views the game differently. And that's totally like, I, if people want to play that way, that's fine. Like this podcast is in the context of shooting your lowest scores. If you want to go out there, I tell people like, you don't have to do all this stuff. This is like fairly disciplined analytical stuff. And some people just don't want to play golf that way. That's totally fine. So maybe let's just leave it there and move on to some other topics. Yeah, I'm squirming. It's so fun. I'm literally doing it on purpose. But the exact same idea applies to let's pretend we've got a green with a ridge in it. And somebody's like, well, you know, that ridge is going to kick it down to the left. So I'm going to aim it over there to the right to get that. You're just putting a different part of your shot pattern on the ridge than if you were aiming at like the mathematically correct decade target. It's why similar to angles into greens don't matter. Slopes and ridges and all that stuff on greens, 99% of the time, they're totally irrelevant also. And that's a really hard one for people to get across in their heads. But they basically, it doesn't matter. Your shot pattern with a seven iron, just make up a number, 30 yards wide. A green that's 30 yards wide is huge. So if you're trying to aim your shot pattern at some different portion of the green in order to gain some some slope, it's just not going to work out at all. I mean, and it really comes down to the idea that it's easier to intentionally not lose shots than it is to intentionally gain shots. So with that seven iron into a par four with a, with a bunch of slopes on it, I can intentionally just try to hit the green and just not make a big mistake as opposed to if I try to catch that slope or ridge and funnel it down to a shot, I'm bringing in the opportunity to make a big mistake. And so Tiger, I think it was the 2013 season, Tiger had 23 approach shots total for the entire season. Keep in mind, I think that's the year he won like, like seven of 13 or 18 starts or something like that. So it was a pretty good season. He had 23 shots total that lost more than a half a stroke on an approach shot. I worked with a kid that was a Walker cupper. He was playing in one of his first starts ever as a professional in Houston. He had seven that week alone. And it's like, <laughs> dude, nice try. You can't go out there and try to force stuff, but it's so hard. Just short-sighting yourself, basically. You're just short-sighting yourself. Yeah, just constantly getting into a weird spot. So, you know, I went through 20,000 of Tiger's shots by hand in shot link, reverse engineering his strategy. And as I'm doing it, you're just toggling through them. And every single time the ball wound up in a, in a weird spot, like normally it's, you know, it's coming up towards the middle of the green or barely short side. Like it all kind of makes sense. And then every once in a while, one will just kind of be like, what happened there? Invariably, you can go back to the tee shot then, and he will have been in the trees or he'll have been in a weird spot. Like his ball, just if he was in a decent lie in the rough or in the fairway, that shot was not going to end up in a weird spot. It might be like, well, that wasn't exactly ideal, but it was not going to be bad. And you just see it constantly with, you know, I work with a lot of younger players on tour. And as I, when I first start working with them, I'll go through three or four of their tournaments of, you know, 12 or 16 rounds of golf. And it's just comical sometimes how many, it's just like, how did that ball get there? How did that ball get there? How did that ball get there? What was going through your head on this one? Well, I was trying to fade a three iron from 230. And I like drawing it. Well, that's not a very good idea, is it? It's just, it's just incredible. Again, even at the highest level, how hard it is to not try to win every single week. Like all these people try to win every single week, and it's just a really bad idea. Yeah, uh, I've got plenty. Let's just no, no, no. I'm not dumbfounded. I'm just like I'm thinking about where I want to go next. But working backwards, I, I gave my definition to a successful tee shot to Mark Brody based on like everything I've absorbed at this point. And to me at this point, it's not about fairway or bust. It's can a golfer advance the ball 
as far as they can, avoiding big trouble and having a clear path to the green. That to me is a successful tee shot, whether you're a PGA Tour professional or a 20 handicapper. And obviously choosing the targets is a bit more nuanced, but I try and keep that in mind. Like when I'm thinking about my strategy is like, what can I do to give myself the best opportunity to avoid, you know, maybe some nasty bunkers, recovery situations, or penalty shots. A lot of the times it's choosing an aim point that's away from them, even if that means going into the rough on the other side of the hole. But when you were growing up and playing the game, a lot of people assumed it was fairway or bust. Is that a reasonable definition for you now is like what you think about as success off the tee? And think of it in the context of a normal golfer. I honestly, I'm really interested to see how I do over the next two years as I try to play more golf. Because again, I am an admitted lunatic. Like I'm a hothead on the golf course. Now I feel like I've meditated my way into uh, (laughs) some sort of sanity or, or normalcy. So it is an expectation management thing. How can people do this? It's hard, man. It's really, really hard to go out there and play without trying to force shots. I mean, so your question, like, how how do you go out and do this? I really do think that you have to understand your shot pattern. You do have to spend some time on Google Earth looking at the courses you're going to play. You do just have to understand and accept the realities of your shot pattern are huge. And there's just nothing you can do to get around that. I do think that you can do it on a driving range by laying out some grids on Google Earth or in Chrome you know, just any sort of satellite program, I guess. Hey, in the decade app, we now have our driving targets, but (laughs) I forgot that that's launched, but you just have to be practicing into these targets. And so I actually had one Twitter question opened over here that I feel like I'm somewhat segueing into, but the question that Mason golf asked was how do you get younger golfers to build routines that can strengthen tee shot strategies? What's a good checklist. I come back to all the time, you know, the block versus random debate. So if, if Adam, oh, and Scott. I, if Adam oh, and I no. <laughs> with the tee shots, now I was going to go with the tee shots specifically. I do think that block practicing those makes total sense because I want you to, the only thing we're trying to do with the tee shots again, is get it within this 60 yard wide grid. That's the goal. And so I want you to get really good at seeing one shape coming off the driver into that grid. Then when you go onto the satellites and you lay out the exact same size grid onto the tightest hole at your home course, you're like, Oh, it fits. And I keep it inside of that 90% of the time I need to muster up some courage and send it. And so to Mason golf's question, how do you build routines? I do think that, you know, you should be getting behind more, you know, shots when you're practicing, you should be slowing down. I think that's the critical thing in the block versus random debate. We're both both on agreement there, you know, breaking it up somehow. I prefer to break it up with throwing in a wedge shot in between a drive, but we're both on in agreement that doing a full routine in practice, standing back, picking your aim points, walking in, doing all your setup. That's an important part if you want to, to build this control especially with the driver. And so what I try to tell people is I don't don't really care where you normally practice on your driving range, but you need to have basically one place that you hit every single driver from. So even if you're over here practicing on the left side of your range, but you know where it's measured at from the middle or whatever, pick up five or six balls, walk to that spot and get behind again. Nobody's going to get behind every single iron shot. It's just exhausting. Nobody's going to, nobody has that kind of focus. But I do believe we should only be hitting, making up a number 15 or 20 drives during a practice session. I do think that you should be taking the time to get behind every single one of those because 
if you can hit the tee shot well, the game's just not that hard. And I look back at my own game in my 20s. Again, I blew it past everyone. I hit it pretty straight. I still drive the ball pretty well. You know, I'm a pretty good player without even practicing or playing ever. And it's because I drive the ball well. So whatever you can do to get really good at driving it. And I do believe that, that block practicing that into a known grid, into a known area, and then really paying attention to what's going on inside your head, because on the driving range, you're never going to think, don't go left. You're never going to think, don't go right. You're never going to think, well, I like fading it, but I'm going to try to draw this one here just to see if I can do it. You're just going to sit there and do the same thing over and over again. And, and I think it's a Ben Hogan quote. If you can't putt, you can't score. If you can't drive it, you can't play. And this always funnels back into like JJ Colleen and, and the, the common question, would you rather never three putt again or drive it whatever distance in the fairway? And it's just driving the ball is such driving the ball well is such a huge advantage in the game that anything you can do to set yourself up for that is is the way to go about it. And again, now you just need to open your eyeballs and look at what the best drivers on the PGA Tour do. And it's exactly what I just said. They hit driver all the time. They hit the same shape over and over and over again. If that shape won't work on a hole for some reason, like 10 at Augusta, you can't fade it on 10 at Augusta. They'll drop back to a three wood to hit like a trap draw and just hit your shape over and over and over again. And if it doesn't fit that hole due to the design, then you choose a different club. You don't choose a different shape. That's by the way, we are on the podcast advocates for hitting the same shape, even with irons. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you on the double cross thing. I think introducing a totally different motor pattern like 10% or 20% of the time, you're setting yourself up for a lot of doubt, which obviously, and, and the double cross misses are just so vicious because <laughs> you're expecting the ball to go one direction and it goes even further away in the other direction. So, a lot about golf is reducing those oops uh, moments and those big scores. And I just don't see where people stand to gain overall by deviating from something that's comfortable and repeatable and they have more confidence in on the course. So me and Adam are totally on the same page there. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. well, critically to that is like, I get it. It'd be cool to be able to work it both ways. I would love to, but I just can't, I, I can't do it. I literally can't do it. I truly do believe that Yes, it would be cool to be able to do it, but I believe that even by having the ability to alter the face path relationship, it also damages your stock shot. I really do believe that. And I know that's a fact for me. I can't make a generic statement across the board, but I'm not a unicorn. I highly doubt that I'm that unusual. And so just by being able to work it both ways, again, specifically with the driver, but even with the irons, again, I literally do fade hundred percent of my shots and I'll, I'll say it. I'm a plus five handicap. Somehow, some way I catch grief by saying I'm a plus five on my <laughs> podcast. I'm like, you're listening to me because I'm good at golf. <laughs> like it's, it's important that people understand that I'm a pretty good player. I literally do not play or practice. I play maybe five or 10 times a year and I'm a pretty damn good player. And it's because solely because I drive the ball well. And this is how I drive it. And I don't see why that shouldn't work for everyone. It's just, again, it's just a really difficult thing to do to work it both ways. And it's largely unnecessary. The, the, the main thing that I tell people, even with irons is if you find yourself in a spot where you're wanting to work it another direction, the opposite direction, you need to ask yourself the question why. And if that answer is to get a look at birdie, that's never a good enough reason. If it's because of some sort of a wind or some sort of whatever, I, again, I literally even struggle to think of the proper situation, a tree, obviously, but aside from that, it's just not necessary. It really isn't. 
we talk not so much about working it both ways necessarily, but having, at least on an underlying level, having the ability to change the direction should the need arise. So, and the reason why that's important is there are so many amateurs out there, just, you know, a guy I played with the other day, he hit 14 drives and 14 were huge slices to the right. If he just knew how, whether this just, whether he brings this out on the course is another thing, but just in his own practice, if he just knew how, what it feels like to close the face a little bit more, he could turn that slice into a playable fade. And, and so, you know, if I'm on the golf course and everything is snap hooking left, I know what it feels like just to open the face enough to turn that hook into a draw. And so it's not necessarily that, you know, doing the nine ball flights or, or shaping it everywhere on the course. We're not advocating that at all, but just having the ability to, if the need be, change direction. I think that's an important skill for a lot of people. Going back to the block practice with driver, which I did a lot of, and I think the reason, and Scott, you've said this and, and me going through it myself proved it to me more is it's one of the shots where you have the control, you have total control. You can tee it up the same way. You can have the ball in your stance a certain way. So when I practiced driver for years and looking at the results on like my sky track, what am I paying attention to? Like ball position, tee height, trying to find the optimal combination of those two for my swing at the moment. Certainly looking at my face strike, you know, spraying the face and understanding that I have a heel bias miss, which as we have hopefully educated listeners of this podcast is going to impart a lot of gear effect, which is actually a good combination for me as a drawer of the golf ball can neutralize that. But I just kept doing it over and over again, not a million swings. Like you said, Scott, it could be like 15 or 20 swings in the session, but trying to find that one stock feel set up everything so that when I step on the course and I pick my target and I understand my dispersion patterns that like, again, I have days where I do not drive it well and I have to accept those, but I'm trying to step onto the course with as much consistency as I can versus changing it. You know, am I going to hit a fade or a draw on this hole? Am I going to tee it low, tee it high. Like I'm trying to approach each shot with the most consistency and just let what's going to happen, happen. And hopefully my skill and work at it can translate to the course. And I think that's helped me versus taking a more hazard approach. Well, oh, I hit my driver crappy for three holes. I'm going to start hitting my four iron off the tee. I understand certain golfers like, you know, that might be the only choice for that day. But in the long run, it's almost like, well, if you're committed to this thing, you got to be committed to it. Well, the way that I view that is honestly, you're amateur golfers. Like sometimes it's just not your day. Yeah, a exactly. Of, a lot of the of a lot of the Twitter questions, at least three or four of them in your feed, were, "What if I've got a double cross working that day, or it's I'm drawing instead of fading it that day?" I'm like, you know what? Just keep working on whatever you're working on. Except that it's maybe it's not your day. But rather than let's pretend you're a 78 shooter, rather than trying to self-diagnose what's going on while you're out on the course and turn a an 80, you know, 78 shooter turning an 80 into an 84, just keep working on whatever you're working on. Maybe it's not your day. Like this is what's so hard about golf is we all, for the most part, get to play so little technically, even if you play a lot, you play a couple times a week, everybody wants to shoot their lowest score every single time you tee it up, which like by definition won't happen very often. And so even when you've got an average round going, you're trying to 
get it back. And so I do just think that the mental gymnastics that everybody runs through constantly of like, how am I hitting it today? What do I need to work on? Like, it's exhausting. And I think that Stuart Sink's quote, when he was talking about decade, the week after he won in Hilton head, again, the guy hadn't won in 11 years and he wins two times in seven months after buying the decade app of the app store. And his quote was, you know, it takes a lot of the, the energy that used to go into making decisions and it makes the decision for me. And I end my rounds feeling, you know, energized and refreshed, which for a 48 year old to say that he's finishing the round more energized than he did when he was 35 is, is pretty much insane if you think about it. But all these mental gymnastics of what if I'm doing this that day, that, dude, just, just keep working on whatever you're working on. Hopefully you've got something you're working on. Work on that. And if not, work on a meditation, like literally try to check out if you can't slow your brain down. Again, the point is I talk about meditation all the time is not to have no thoughts. It's to recognize a ruminating thought process before it spirals out of control and you wake up and be like, oh, I wish I could go back 30 minutes. I would do that differently. That's not how it works. I mean, and, and so you've got to recognize my pace of thinking is starting to speed up. And then you need to have a strategy in place to slow that back down. That's the key. One of the things that you know, Adam and I are huge proponents of people getting help, whether you take advantage of some of Adam's programs or work with a swing instructor. But you know, again, another common question that I got on my Twitter feed and elsewhere over the years with with this driver talk, because again, you know, I, I think one of the things we're promoting in this episode is that you know the priority off the tee should be driver, and as you said, like you need to actually find a reason not to hit it. Which That's a great way of putting it, actually. Yeah. And, and for most players, again, you know, for the golfer who's hitting at 220, 230, 240, it's even more of a priority for them because distance is more paramount off the tee. Go back to our Mark Brody episode on stroke skiing. It's more important to hit the ball farther off the tee when you're not a long hitter than it is for a tour player who can hit at 320 and lay back 280 because they're phenomenal iron players. The proximity will not hurt them as much. But my point is, is that if you do you want to make a huge jump in your game? And I know a lot of people do. And driver is sitting in the bag. Get some help. You know, find a swing instructor who can maybe put you on a launch monitor. Take a look at your swing and say, hey, you're hitting down on it seven degrees and across 12 degrees. Like this is just not functional. Let's try and neutralize this. Perhaps you can do it with some of the methods Adam and I have given you in practice or you need technical intervention but you know i would say and to all youtube those players, is not an instructor no we've gone over that as well but like one of my plea to people is is like get some help like if you can conquer that club more and get more confidence in it as scott said and like i'm telling you too like the game opens up for you a lot more and it's more fun like it's really fun hitting the driver and i don't want to make this all about bombing it because most people aren't bombing it you can so bomb that's it relative to yourself though exactly it's fun so Here's another question for you that, you know, keeps coming up is like, do you think there are certain scenarios maybe with high swing speed players where, you know, let's say the driver's such a big problem for them. They got the yips or something like, what do you think about safety clubs, like driving irons? Like I always say that, what if I just play my driving iron all the time? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's, it's really difficult to make a comment because I've personally never had a driver yip. So I don't even really understand when somebody's like, I've got a driving yip. I don't really even understand what that feels. Unfortunately, if somebody says I've got a putting yip, I'm like, whoa, I know what that feels like. <laughs> Not ideal. When I look at a driver, I'm like, God, I can't imagine having that feel. But obviously, if you've got a driver yip going, you, yeah, I mean, yeah, again, Henrik Stenson, he doesn't have a driver yip, but he definitely hits down on it too much. He hits his three wood better than his driver, which is an anomaly. So yeah, for he's an extreme. Like, he's always an extreme outlier. 
Yeah. On average, you need to muster up some courage and send it. But what I'm going to do, and it's funny because you know, it's exact bag setup that Mickelson used at the PGA. I actually was talking to another tour player yesterday, and I can't remember who the two names were that he dropped, but it was two players that I've talked to before. Gosh, dang it. I can't think who it was. I got, I'm such a COVID idiot right now. It's ridiculous. But he was telling me that both of those players are using a driver, a mini driver, and then a hot long iron. And so what I've been saying for, I mean, almost two years now, when I get closer to 50, what I will be doing is having a 47 inch driver and then a mini driver with more loft because it's easier to put the ball back in your stance. You can't just put a a five degree driver back in your stance. That's not going to pan out very well. But if I have like an 11 or 12 degree, 43 and a half inch driver, I think I'll be able to turn that thing over without losing much ball speed, without changing my swing much. And then from there, personally, I'm going to have like an 18 degree. I've got a Shrix on the driving iron currently. It's the same thing as like a Mizuno high fly. When you start having those bulge and rolls, and again, we're talking about good players now, the bulge and rolls on hybrids, it's not as good of a club for most elite players. I'm going to try to have a flat faced rocket of an iron that I can hit 260 or 70. I'm going to have a mini driver that I can draw 300. And I'm going to have a 47 inch driver that I can hit 330 or 340. And that combination, like, I don't see where I can go wrong on any, on any hole. Like I'm going to have a perfect option and then I'll have a gap from that three iron back to my four iron, but it's just not my biggest concern of a place to have a gap. Most people have too big of a gap in like they are not a big enough gap rather in either their four or five or their five, six, I'll try to expand those gaps and then have a flat faced, you know, rocket of a driving iron. I think that's one thing people should probably look into. Again, the guy that I was having this conversation with about the 47 inch, like I'm literally sitting, I'm like, dude, I'm hitting my 44 and a half right now. Swing speed is 118. I can pick up the exact same swing with the 47 inch and it's 123. Five miles an hour is 15 to, to 25 yards of distance. The math is extremely straightforward. And critically, it just does not go that much more offline. It really doesn't. No, I mean, that that is the exact bag I have now. I have 47-inch, 10-degree, 44-inch, 12-and-a-half-degree. I, I put it in the middle of my stance and hit that. I hit like a stinger hook. And I have I do have a hybrid 3-iron because I, I have special feelings for it. And I, I deal with the gear effect when it happens. And I I actually had a nasty heel at Friar's Head this week. My One of my double bogeys came from a heeled hybrid on a par five where I had like 220 in. I was thinking, all right, you know, get this on the green two putt for birdie. And I healed it and it went right, right, you right. Heal it or shank? Come on, say it the was, word. I know you was, both, both honestly, you guys have the shanks, don't you? You've got I, that in you. I haven't shanked one in years. This was, I guess maybe it was a shank. I don't know what a shank feels like on a hybrid. It didn't feel like it, but it went way right into the sand dunes and I made a double, which was unfortunate, but I got past it. But any event, I have that current makeup in my bag. I dropped the three wood because I hate them with a passion, but that's my own decision. It's just kind uh, of a pointless what? club. I mean, again, this is where, and I wish I could remember who it was. I can't remember, but he was talking about these guys hitting that mini driver off the ground. He's like, it, it was just like a three wood. And again, it's going to be a hot three wood. But if you are, you know, again, I'm making up numbers for elite type players, but if you are 280 or 290 and you can get a mini driver up and around it, like I, I do expect that to be the bag setup in a couple of years. Like I will be stunned if that's not pretty common on tour. And most importantly, like I hate saying it, but I do agree with the USGA's idea of limiting the length of drivers to 46 inches because it is just faster. I mean, it is 
It is pretty basic physics. That shaft being longer, the club head is just going to go faster. And once people realize, yes, I miss hit it more often, but not offline. I just kind of clank it a little bit shorter, but it's kind of the same directionally. It, it really is. My only concern with the USGA doing that is because of a kid like Tommy Morrison here in Dallas, who's 15 and he's 6'10", like making him swing a 46 inch doesn't seem fair. So I don't really know what the right alternative is for that. But I do think most people aren't going to have the courage to jump up to 47 or eight. And I'm hoping that's the case because it just goes faster. And I, that is something I certainly plan on trying to exploit on the champions tour. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024 and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonder Lux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. Yeah, I mean, I would go back. We had an episode with Woody Lashin on driver fittings, and he was, you know, helped me with my driver struggles. And for years, the 44 inch shaft was the solution for me. That helped me gain control over the face of the driver and really trained me for about four years to develop really good face control and strike. And then surprisingly, I I was able to transfer that over to the 47 inch shaft. Of course, that's not going to work for everyone. Sometimes it's not the right answer. But, you know, for people listening who have this like horrible fear of your driver, I would also say one part of the equation 
is to get the right equipment set up because sometimes people are making it way harder for themselves. Like sometimes they're playing a head and shaft combination that, you know, results in way too much spin, which is not good for distance and accuracy with your driver or vice versa. You could have too little spin and you're hitting ducks falling out of the sky, which has happened to me. So I'm trying to address the people on Twitter and everyone else who's come at me with these horrible driver fears because I know what they feel like. And I have been driving it well for a few years, but maybe it'll return. Maybe I'll be terrified of my driver again and we'll have to deal with it. But I think it's one of the most important problems in golf to solve. I really do. I couldn't agree more because while I don't agree we have a distance problem, I do agree it needs to be frozen where it is, which is exactly what the case has been for, I mean, 20 years at this point. As I've done on Twitter a number of times, I can take a 25-year-old Strata and a 25-year-old Callaway Great Big Bertha, and I can get a one-and-a-half smash factor out of it, and I can get the exact same ball speeds that I can get out of a modern driver. Yes, it's harder to hit. But it's not so much harder to hit that at a tour level, I would actually back off my swing to hit it more solid. Now, you roll the club head back or anything back on the amateur golfer, and they're going to hit it all over the face. The game's going to suck. It literally would change nothing on the PGA Tour whatsoever. We're just going to bring every controversy that you've ever been involved in on this show. <laughs> I had a, someone had a segue into that, didn't I? I feel like well, I, I mean, totally yeah, I, I'm, you know, maybe we're hoping to have you on more in, in the future because you're a great resource. But um, yeah, we maybe we can do a controversial episode and make Adam and I squirm really badly one because we're just like, me and him are cut from the same cloth on that one. We don't like controversy. Am I right, Adam? <laughs> I love it. Adam's not even going to comment on it. Yeah. Like, well, what do you, uh, I mean, we're, I think we're going to have to split this into two parts, which, you know. I'll, I was going to say, we need to land this plane. It's already a two-hour well, flight. I, I, could sp- <laughs> I could split it into two parts. Um, if you're listening to this, you're probably on part two now. Adam, do you have any more questions or thoughts about tee shot strategy, even though we veered into several other topics? I know. Every time we, we try and talk about tee shot, it goes into something else. Um, That's okay. Golf is a complicated, multidimensional it, game. It is, yeah. I think the one thing that I'll say is there's one question from Adam Cahill here that says, taking your average distance into account, how do you judge playing away from a hazard with the possibility of being blocked on your second shot? Is three with the right play, par five hole? I think the key to tee shot strategy is always just the simple question, what's the alternative and what does that accomplish? And rarely is three wood. I mean, again, if the fairway pinches to less than 40 yards, y'all will see that in the NGCA video, like whatever, it's all in there. But rarely does three would actually accomplish much over driver either the holes wide enough for driver or it's not. And then it's your club below three wood. And I think that, you know, this guy is saying you're going to be blocked on your second shot. Well, if I drop back to three wood, does whatever that tree is, that's blocking me, does it actually get out of the way? Like rarely. And what's interesting is actually with driver, the further you hit it up the fairway, typically the fewer trees there are that are going to be in play because you've hit it further. So instead of having seven trees to go through, I've only got two trees to go through. It literally makes the trees less important, actually. Similar to if you're if you're playing a dog leg left, the outside of the dog leg is typically going to be better than the inside of the dog leg just because of how many trees you're going to have to go through. But there's certain things like that that you can't do anything about. So what's the point of even considering it? Again, well, it's, it's just trees kind of are ninety percent air anyway. Yeah. Well, Shotscope did an interesting analysis on driver versus three wood amongst, you know, recreational players. And what they found was is that, you know, players who took three wood off the tee did not hit more fairways. They actually hit almost identically the same amount of fairways they hit with their driver, but they gave up twenty to thirty yards, which is about 
you know, as your handicap goes up and your ball striking ability goes down, that 20 and 30 yard distance costs you more. It was almost a third of a stroke they found. So, you know, all things being equal, most players didn't benefit from taking the three wood off the tee for safety. Now, there's a difference in what you're talking about is there's certain holes where you have to limit your distance and play back to avoid certain trouble where it makes more sense. I think those are two separate issues. I think that the one thing, because I've seen that one before, and I I just question it a little bit because there's a there's going to be for sure a bit of a sample bias in there of Probably. the holes that people choose three wood on are going to be tighter on average. That said, given the exact same width of fairways, you should hit your the fairway at four to seven percent is is about the correct number pretty much for anyone you know without a driver yip going on. That's pretty much how much tighter shot patterns will be, but. The point still stands. A hundred percent of your shots, like you're saying, are going to be twenty to fifty yards longer, depending on how much longer you hit your driver than three would. And and even just at twenty yards, I mean, it's a, a tenth of a stroke. I mean, it matters. And that's well, the where- the issue for most amateur players. The club head design is just simple. A PGA Tour player is going to strike it on the middle of the face most of the time. They can hit three wood off the tee and not expect to teal, uh, heal it or toe it very badly. You talk about a fifteen twenty handicapper. Now you start getting the difference in club head design becomes a major limiting factor with three hood. Smaller face to hit, less MOI, less forgiveness on off-center hits. Generally, they launch it lower, so they're not going to get as much distance out of it. It's actually a much harder club to hit off the tee. It's not designed to be hit off the tee. It's designed to be hit off the ground. So I agree with you. There's probably some bias in there, but at the same time, that club is much harder to hit off the tee than a driver, you know, apples to apples comparison. So that's always something I, I, I think about when all, one of the reasons I got rid of the three wood, it wasn't benefiting me. I couldn't hit it straighter and I was losing distance. Um, again, you have to do this testing on your own. There are exceptions. Adam always says measured, you know, look at your results, your intent. And I agree with him. We just opened up another can of worms there. <laughs> I'm just sitting here. I'm literally just sitting here laughing right now at how much you, because you are a pretty guy that's not going to cause controversy. You've got to be so cringing inside of some of the stuff I say like, oh no, let's. Well, that doesn't, no, that, that one doesn't bother me because I'm very. We, we I think just I, have a disclaimer on this. All thoughts, Scott says, are not representative of the Sweet Spot podcast. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I mean. Everything Scott says is representative except for when he's being a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you you and I have had a lot of philosophical phone conversations about Twitter and social media and controversy and being productive in life. Yeah, <laughs> we won't go into that here, Adam. If this is going to be a two-parter, then yeah, I've just got keep a couple going. Of, Who cares? Yeah, I got a couple of thoughts. My question was: Scott said something right at the start of this podcast. It would have been in actually episode one, but you said some of your thoughts have changed. And you said something about all psychology or there's a greater deal of psychology. So what's evolved in your thinking over the last few years? You know, honestly, just what it is that what I teach resonates so well with players. You know, I read all of the Rotella and the Dave Cook. I read, I read all the books back whenever I was younger and I've gone back and reread them now. I'm like, oh, it's all right here. I just think that using data and images and video content especially with me. And again, I'm not a unicorn. I think that that resonates better with players than just the written word does. It's just really hard to read. And especially when you're reading something and it's in a golf context, it's hard not to like be putting yourself in those situations. And really what shifted for me, it really is funny looking back at the Genesis of decade 2014 was the year Tim Ferriss released his podcast. His second, that's the year that I caddied for Zalatoris at the Texas amateur. 
His second guest was Josh Waitskin, who's the guy that the movie Searching for Bobby Fisher was based on. The podcast was great. So his book is called The Art of Learning. I recommend it all the time on Twitter. I've bought over 100 copies of it to give away to people on social media. It's by far the best book. But the reason that I had personally resonated with it was it's a book about chess. I don't play chess, but it wasn't a book about golf. (laughs) It was a sports psychology book, not written in a golf context. And that's what made the lessons resonate for me. Avoid the downward spiral, you know, stay present, all these things that, again, everybody talks about constantly. And then what I think that I've done differently is again, I was a lunatic. And so every video that I make is, you know, again, on Twitter, like I'm, I'm not going to beat around the bush. I just, I don't know if that means I have Asperger's or what, but I'm just not going to do it. This is what I think. And here's what I feel. And there it is. Deal with it however you need to. And so when people do, sometimes they're like, wow, you're pretty, pretty direct in your videos. I'm like, yeah, but you can't be offended because technically I'm talking to my 25 year old self. Tim Ferriss, again, has got a great thing that he talks about one of his podcasts where he says, People ask him what he does when he has writer's block. And he says, I just think of one of my friends who has this problem and I just write a letter to him. And that's how I get started. That's I'm not a creative person. That's where I start every video or everything that I ever make is how would I frame this to my 25 year old self who was a lunatic? And again, golf, no offense. But if you're listening to this, you've made it two and a half hours into this podcast. You're probably a lunatic too. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Golf attracts a whole bunch of type A people that think they can perfect this game and you can't. And that's where I think that I've done a better job than most of the traditional sports psychologists, if you will, is by using that fact and just being very blunt about it and then solving the problem. So the math of strategy is all predicated on the emotion and the discipline to follow it. And again, that's where I tell you, I could literally teach you decade in about 10 minutes. It's extraordinarily simple. Well, then why is my seminar five hours long? Because I've got to teach you all of the psychology to then be able to apply it because it doesn't do you any good to know all this stuff, but then not have, oh, but this wedge feels really good. Again, going back to 2014, catting for Zalatoris, it was about six or seven holes into the state am. And I was literally looking at this. I'm like, this is so dumb. There's no doubt in my mind, if I had been playing, I would have thrown it in the trash before I made the turn the first round. But sitting here caddying for a 17-year-old kid, and I'm like, you know, he's one under. I mean, let's just let's just play this thing out. And he shoots like 67 or 8 in the first round. I swear to God, my the whole drive home, I was like, what just happened? Because that was so simple. And at the time, Will had never beaten me, not once. And so in theory, I would have shot, you know, 66 or whatever in the first round. And if I had shot that, I'd been like, that's a really good round of golf. It was just driving home. And again, as a caddy, removing the emotion of having to hit the shots and just step back and be like, objectively, what's the proper play here? Objectively, what do I know you're thinking right now, Will? Because the final round, it was, it was awesome. It's number 16 at Brook Hollow plays right back up by the clubhouse. And of course, all the members there, they're not wanting to walk out on the course. They've all got their cocktails and there's about a hundred of them around the 16th tee. And I was looking at Will who hits, you know, at the time he carries it over 300 yards, even as a 140 pound, 17 year old. And I'm like, if that was me, I would be walking up onto this tee and about to show everybody the big dog. Watch this people. You think that was good? Watch this. And so I literally took Will to the side and I was like, you're planning on killing this one, aren't you? And he's like, kind of. And I'm like, These people won't have a clue. If you top it, they will have no idea. As long as you make contact, you're going to blow their mind. I need you to just put your normal swing on this one and get it in play. 
stripes it right out there in the fair when he was walking off the tee. He's like, I'm really glad you said that because I for sure was about to try to kill that one just to impress them. And so that's the underlying psychology that I do think that as a good player, most importantly, who was a lunatic and knows all the crazy stuff that goes through our heads. And I'm just able to in real time, kind of like, I know what I'd be thinking right there. How can we think something different and better? And that's what I do think is, is different and why initially, you know, in the podcast, like you said, I was talking about the math and everything. I definitely thought originally it was all the math and definitely in hindsight, it's all the psychology of understanding the math. Well, drawn upon other domains, I know both you and I were into stocks, investing, and I think that's a great analogy as well for it is you see all the random variants from day to day, which could be in, in the uh, context of golf, the shot variants. But as long as you've got a good investing strategy, then things will work out for you long term. And that's all you can do, really. If you try and play the day to day, you're probably going to lose out more than you, than you'll gain if you. Yes, but there is an also an awful lot of underlying psychology in it. So well, yeah. literally, yeah. as we've been sitting here on this podcast, I've day traded the S and P five hundred. I day traded the S and P twice I've because I'm sitting here watching well, this. An idiot, huh? <laughs> I've well, done Forex as an idiot. Well, there's psychology involved. The the jobs reports coming out, they're, they're not going to sell this thing down, you know, 5%. And so the market gap down at one and a half percent this morning. I bought it because I'm like, who would be selling this and why? There's no psychological, there's no reason. And sure enough, just watch this thing melt up the rest of the day. I'm like, that was pretty easy. You You just, you can see. And again, it is all psychology. Money, golf, it's all so, so hard to do. And remain objective. Objective is if there's the one word everyone should tattoo on their forehead, it's remain objective. I guess that's two words. There's two words you should tattoo on your forehead. It's <laughs> remain objective. You know, getting back to 2014, again, Tim Ferriss's second guest was Josh Waitzkin. That's the only reason I got that book. That's the only reason I think that my psychology was ready for handling Will at the Texas Hammond U.S. Junior. His fifth guest was Jason De Silva, And it was the most random question ever where the, Tim Ferriss asked him, he's like, is there anything you know, you're really into right now. And that, that was a random question to me, but Jason's answer was even more random. He's like, I'm really into the song time from the movie inception. It's like, that's the strangest answer possible. So naturally I movie, I got you to watch recently for the first time. Correct. <laughs> true. true. <laughs> I, uh, you know, so I hop on YouTube and I listen to the song. I'm like, wow, that is a pretty good song. And then I was thinking to myself, what, why does Will not do better? And I thought he's got to get out in these golf tournaments and probably freak out, you know, whether that's, who knows what it's from, but he's got it. He's too good not to be doing better than he is. And so I told Will, I'm like, I want you to listen to the movie time or the song time for the movie inception. I want you to listen to it to start and end each day because I wanted to, during the Texas M, if I saw him freaking out, I wanted to just be able to point to my watch. And that meant time, which meant, dude, you're freaking out. Slow down. I got you here. And again, it really is all just looking back at it. Yes. Mark Brody's awesome work, obviously with strokes gained was, one of the most important parts, but Tim Ferriss's podcast was absolutely without it. There's no way any of this happens because it's taking all of the psychology from all of that. And then really understanding just a little bit better about what peak performance is versus what I would have ever thought it was about before. Uh, I'm glad we brought this up because you and I, I think we've had separate conversations on the phone about how strategy ends up being more about psychology because I think the trap that a lot of people fall into, myself included for a long time, is that it's incredibly easy to absorb simple 
good logical information. Like the one trap that golfers always happens is like, you know, you'll listen to something, you read something maybe that Scott puts out there or whatever. And you're like, oh, I'm going to do that on the golf course and I'm going to be better. But then the real challenge becomes is we all know, you mentioned lunatic. (laughs) Adam and myself have shared some lunatic moments we've had on the golf course and I've had plenty of them. Everything changes so quickly, and this is relative to each golfer, whether you're, you know, a 20 handicapper looking to break 90 and win a NASA off your buddy, or if you're an ultra competitive elite amateur player, like pressure is relative in this game and the expectations are real. So I know what it's like to, you know, get that one chance to play on Saturday. And if it doesn't go well, you're losing your mind. And the point with the strategy part of it being linked to psychology is that the easiest thing to do is, is let your emotions override like the cold hard logic the math of that optimal target and say well you know what f it i'm going you know i'm changing things i'm not going to be as disciplined and that's taken me many years to get better and better at i'm not perfect at it but you know i played in a very high pressure tournament yesterday coming down the stretch where you know something was on the line for me an exemption that i really wanted and i didn't really change anything coming down the stretch. I just accepted the results. And I've talked about this before on the show is that I'm truly okay with either scenario happening because it really is just golf. It's supposed to be fun. And I think that's one of the hardest puzzles to solve. And the most interesting one is, is that how can you detach the emotions from the smart analytical part and just make the right decision and accept the outcome either way, and then just move on to the next shot and do it all over again. And that's the thing. It's easy to sit here and say it. I mean, that's why I'm honestly really intrigued to see. I have, I literally have not played golf. I mean, honestly, 50 times in the last six years. I mean, I really just don't play much golf. It's really easy to sit around here and talk about like, this is all super easy and whatever. I'm really curious to see how I do with it over the next two years as I try to get back into tournament golf, because it's not easy. Again, golf just attracts a whole bunch of type A people that think we can do better than we can. And I mean, like, again, like what you just said, you're a weekend warrior. You only get to play once a week. And then with, you know, weather and everything, you you get to play what 30 times a year. You really want to play good every time you play, which I would consider good to be a 70th or 80th percentile type round, which by definition doesn't happen very often. So most rounds are filled with disappointment and, You've got to have a system, a strategy in place. I'm not trying to say like decade there, but like you have to have something in place that's going to help you navigate that. I've got another video on my YouTube channel. I think it's called Solving Problems. It's either Solving Problems or Priorities, where I take one of Sam Harris's meditations and I break it down with, it's a 10 minute meditation that I, I let him talk for a minute or two. And then I jump in and I talk about how you could apply this to golf. And just one of the main things is like every single round of golf, you know, something bad's going to happen. Like that's a given. And I used to act like problems were anomalies and not to be expected. Like, oh my God, I hit a bad shot. What? I just had, I was not prepared for it at all. As opposed to now it's like, yeah, I pretty much know I'm going to hit a bunch of really bad shots. That's why DJ's so amazing. He had an interview with Frank Nablo during the British Open a couple of years ago. And Frank's like, yeah, you seem pretty chill out there. And, and DJ's like, I mean... I hit a lot of good shots every day. Am I really going to get that excited? I hit a lot of bad shots every day. Am I going to really get that mad? And it's like, that's so basic and it's just the way he's wired. And it's why he's one of the, I mean, I would say probably arguably the best player over the last 10 years is because he's just like, not that he doesn't care. He cares a ton, but he knows he doesn't have any control over it. So what's the point in getting that upset? Because 
whatever your average score is, your average score plus one to three shots, most of the time those were you quit in some form or fashion. I mean, there was some level of quitting. Either you chucked strategy to the side because you were going to force it to get it back to a good round. You just checked out and just hit shots for four holes. Like most of those sub average rounds had some level of quit in it. And if you can just dig through that quit, you're going to be a couple shots better, like literally just by not quitting. And I know that's a harsh word, but it's a pretty accurate one. And simply by doing that as consistently as possible, it's what's going to drop your, your, your scoring average. We've had a whole podcast on grit. So yeah, Yeah, I was just about to say that. Yeah. It's, I think in the context of people who play this game for fun or should be playing it for fun, which is really 99.5% of golfers, for me, it's a fun pursuit. I, you know, practical golf is my business, but I still play this game for fun. And I, every round I, I'm out there, I have that commitment to – I remember yesterday when I was playing, there was a moment on the back nine where, yes, I was worried about my score and where I was going to finish, but I just looked around on the course. I sat down on the tee. I was waiting for the group in front of me, and I just sat down and looked around. I'm like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Like, I just was listening to, like, crickets chirping, like a nice crisp fall day, and I'm like, this is such a special experience being out here doing this, and I could blow it. I could not blow it, whatever. I want to kind of mentally file away this moment. I try and do that as much as possible now because I wasted so many years, like you said, starting off the round expecting that 90th percentile performance and got a lot worse than that and made it spiral out of control and didn't enjoy myself and didn't play all that well. So and we're getting to, I think I'm now scratched before I was, I was like plus 1.5 this year. So, I mean, most of that's, yeah, and 70% of my rounds are tournament rounds now, mostly playing tournament golf. So it's been a big, you know, the last five years, I've, I've climbed a huge mountain performance-wise, and I'm trying to be honest and forthright with how I'm getting there and sharing that info. But a lot of it is me not caring. <laughs> like, and I, and I, <laughs> One of the conversations with you that I specifically remember was, you know, at the end of the day, like with all due respect, you are an amateur golfer. You're a really yes. good amateur golfer, but yeah. you are an amateur golfer. Yes. But you are making your living in the golf space now all of a sudden. And I remember one of the things you're saying is like, I don't really want to go out there and shoot, you know, if you're a, a scratch 78's in play for sure. I don't want to go shoot 78. Like I'm yep. out here telling people this is how you do it. And that's when I say I'll be interested to see how I handle it because like by definition, half the time I'm going to play poor. Yep. And and how will I handle that? Because ego, if you don't think ego gets in the way, and that was one thing I entered Q school two years ago. And I can assure you, I didn't want to shoot a bunch of 75s and give my detractors any more fodder to give me a hard time. And if I'm going to go do this full time, there's going to be a whole bunch of miscuts along the way and a whole bunch of misqualifiers and figuring out how to not care what everyone thinks is a challenge. Like at the end of the day, we all have egos. And figuring out how to get out of that because that's how you implode. That's how you try to get things back and wind up turning an average score into a poor one. And that's that's the key, I think. Yeah, understanding or like you said, not letting what other people think affect what you do and how you feel. I mean, it's such an important thing. I mean, I've been studying philosophy since I was 20. You know, I've been doing all the same things as you, Sam Harris and stuff like that, Stoicism and Marcus Aurelius meditations and things like that. And, you know, I've, I've certainly got to a point in my life where I, I can handle things much better, but it, it is when you 
you know, even as a, a, I'm a plus three, according to, you know, predicted, obviously I'm a pro, I don't have a handicap, but when I, you know, the scores that I've plugged in, I'm around about a plus three at the moment, but I can, yeah, I can throw in a 78 and, you know, it, it affects you mentally when that happens or when you're playing with someone and they're like, you're, you're a plus three and you just shot a 78. And so, well, yeah, I shot a seven under last week. And you're like, why am I doing that? It's all ego, right? Why am I telling people that? Oh, yeah, I shot a 70s. It's ego. And really, it's just, it shouldn't matter. I know we're going really off topic here, but. Well, I think it does boil, come back to decision making because I think, I shouldn't say I don't care. Of course, I care what people think of my game and see on some level, but I'm playing for my own enjoyment. I try and share some of my victories. And I shared, you know, when I made a triple bogey at Beth Page Black earlier this year, I wrote an article about it and it just had a horrible start to the round. And it was embarrassing in the moment because I got stuck in the trees and I'm like, oh, this is, you know, Mr. Practical Golf making dumb choices. And it, and it was real. It happened because I'm not perfect. I'm not a machine. But my point is, or at least the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, the harder it is to like think of all the results and the score and like letting that score dictate your fun level, that makes it so much harder to make the smarter decisions because you're thinking to yourself, well, my target score today was an 84 and now I'm 10 over after six holes. You're already like on the wrong side of things because you're you're obviously thinking about the results rather than the process. And again, I am not perfect at this. Like I think about my score. I try not to like my affect my decision making, but I try and get incrementally better at that. So yeah, the flip side to, especially with tee shots, because that's the shot where the most can go wrong. Like, you know, you have an eight foot putt. What's the worst thing that can happen? You two putt it. You know, the, the psychologically tee shots can be so damaging and there's so much emotion involved either before the shot or after it. And the better job you can do to, I guess, be more stoic about it and more disciplined to the math and the decision making. And then on the flip side, accepting the result and being like, hey, you know what? It ain't so bad. I'm still out in the sunlight. The birds are chirping. I'm walking around or having a few beers with my friends, whatever, however you experience this game. I think that has to be part of the conversation because, you know, when Scott, you said it's not just about math anymore. Like it's not, it's not about that for me either. It's also about like the, what's going on in your brain is important too. Well, I think critically for those like listening at home is you have to also think when you are worried about what other people are going to think who specifically is it that you're worrying about? And again, like I've got plenty of haters on Twitter. And like I say, when I entered Q school a couple of years ago, I didn't want to shoot a million and have those specific people, you know, be able to give me a hard time. But at the end of the day, if somebody's actually going to give you a hard time, they're probably not your friend. So who really cares? I think that getting to that understanding again, to help your ego dissolve and to help you just stay present and not attached to results is anybody who actually likes you is rooting for you. They don't, I mean, they, they hope you shoot good, well, but they don't really care. And anyone who actually enjoys your playing poorly, well, they're kind of by definition, not your friend. So who yeah. And also the main thing I would say, I, I would say this, like I, this, this haunted me for years. Like no one cares. Your playing partners are all worried about like what they're doing. Like they're worried about their, you know, score and what's going on in their head. Like you have a bad round. Like everyone has a bad round. Like nobody, I think that's one of the main fears I get from readers and have myself is like, well, I get paired up with a lot of randoms and I get so much pressure on me to play well. It's like nobody cares. They care if you lose your temper. They care if you take a long time before your shots and you ruin their experience. That's what they care about. They don't care about, you know, you having a tough time on the course. So as hard as that is to do it, it, it you know, 
for the weekend warriors, they they have to start letting go of that because everyone is totally focused on their own game. And ultimately, to be a completely nihilist, none of it matters. Yeah, exactly. And then <laughs> really we can watch. Matter. <laughs> then we can go into the video that Scott. I remember you sent me before one of my first big tournaments. Here, it was like a video saying that like nothing matters. I'm like, well, then should I even play? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually something I had a conversation with my doctor, Lard, my sports psychiatrist, about a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, I actually think I've like feel like I've taken it too far right now because I'm just kind of like. <laughs> I don't really care. Like, and, and I got to figure can, out how yeah. to care a little more. I, I definitely am a little too nihilistic personally. Buddhism did that to me. Yeah. I studied that for a little while and that, that made me a little bit nihilistic. I don't know whether I got the right interpretation of it, but <laughs> <laughs> we've taken like, we're way off the track now. So let's try and wrap this up. We're at well over two hours. This is split into two episodes now. Scott, say that YouTube video again, because I want everyone to watch it. N is in Nancy, GCAA, National Golf Coaches Association of America, NGCAA driving video. If you just stick that in YouTube, it's this, or if you just stick that in Google, it'll come up. And it's the reason that I don't actually, the video is, I mean, it's got to be six years old now. It is, it is one of the very first videos I ever made. And I leave it up just because it's so easily searchable. The information is still the same and it's literally everything that you need to know about tee shots. I would tell everyone to watch that. When I first saw it with my golf coach, you know, my former college coach, I watched it. I was like, oh my God, that makes perfect sense. It's a great video. And, and, you know, to Scott's credit, I think he's one of the best communicators in the golf industry, which is why so many people are using Decade. In any event, let's wrap it up there. Hopefully we've given you some thoughts on tee shot strategy, philosophy, psychology. It kind of went many different directions. And I, I want to do more of these because I think, you know, hopefully people can benefit from these episodes. So Scott, if they want to check you out and Decade, where can they find you? Google Scott, Decade. <laughs> <laughs> you know at what this to point, do. Yeah. At this point, it is pretty simple. I mean, if you just Google Decade Golf, you'll find it. If you uh, search Scott Fawcett, you'll find it come through birdiefire.com or playinglesson.com or Mr. John Sherman, our host, he has a discount code for the foundation's course, $75 instead of yeah. 99 Go buy it off of him, make him a little money or go straight to my website and let's cut him out of this deal. Without saving you money. But yeah, so I mean, also, can you quickly, I actually get a lot of questions. Can you quickly make the distinction between Decade Elite and Decade Foundations just so people know if they, if they actually want to go a step further and subscribe to your stuff? Yeah, Foundations. So when I first created this, it really was designed for elite tournament golf. Like I'm not going to dispute that whatsoever. After seeing how many people were shooting in the mid 80s and buying the app and tracking every stat, I was like, wow, I've really, we had a light version, but it really was just a placeholder to get into the app store foundations is designed for, I mean, for any golfer, but really for anyone who's averaging over 80, if you're 75 to 80, you're you're ready for either level. If you're under 75, just go ahead and jump into the elite, but foundations, it's the same content. It just breaks it up into six months of delivery. So the elite version, the app shoot, it's got 10 hours of tutorial content, probably in it. It's, it's a lot foundations breaks that up into six, you know, hour and a half bite-sized chunks in order for you to just kind of slowly take the con- content in and most importantly, go out and tinker with it. Uh, you know, so month one is shot patterns and practice habits and make golf easy, which is, you know, what we were talking about with hitting one shape, go out and tinker around with that for three weeks. Then month two comes in with all the putting information on putting speed control and some putting drills. Then in month three, we really start digging deeper into approach shot and tee shot strategy. So 
it's all the exact same content for the most part. And then it is a stripped down foundations is a stripped down stats portal where it's the tiger, the five stats that tiger tracked whenever he was playing. So rather than tracking full shot length, strokes, gain statistics, we just start with the tiger five, because I really want players for those first six months to be using all of their off course time to be watching content, not really tracking stats. And then once they get through the content, then we'll start tracking stats in the elite version and then start the elite version. It's, it's like a choose your own adventure book where it will, it's got a little bit of AI built into it where it will go through and find your lowest hanging fruit and then send you content. We've got a catalog of a couple hundred videos in the background. Like I say, that's like a choose your own adventure book where it will find the video most applicable to you and send you a new video every week to hopefully get you shooting lower scores. Great. Well, I've had a lot of practical golf readers who have gone through foundation since it came out. And yes, we do have the discount on practical golf deals, but I wouldn't be plugging it unless I believed in the content. It's excellent. And I've gotten so many emails from people being like, Hey, this changed my game. Again, nothing complicated or out of the ordinary. It's it's Scott pointing you in the right direction as a good coach should do. And then of course, you're going to have to do some work on your own, but it's going to be more efficient work. So yeah, you can check out either um, or check out Scott's YouTube and don't argue with him on Twitter. I think he's done with that. Thanks for everyone listening. Hopefully we'll have you on again for different topics. Adam, where can they find you? AdamYoungGolf.com. And John, where can people find you? You can find me at practical-golf.com. And just a quick thank you to our show sponsor, Shop Indoor Golf. Um, You can find them at shopindoorgolf.com. Whether you're looking for a launch monitor, mats, practice nets, anything that goes into building your own home simulator, which all three of us have, and it's incredibly fun, you can give them a call, go to their site, and they can help you pick the right technology and get you a setup that you can build on your own for a reasonable price. So shopindoorgolf.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.